What's up, and welcome to Brewery Talks Podcast, a podcast bringing you the stories behind the beer. My name is Nash, and I live on the road full-time in an RV, visiting breweries all across the nation. Today's episode is amazing. I sat down with Tucker Robinson of Wild Edge Brewing Collective in Cortez, Colorado. Today we start by hearing Tucker's unique background. I personally think he's someone that is living the craft beer lover's dream. Tucker also tells us about what it's like to be a head brewer and how he goes about not only making his beer, but also the thought process that goes into making his beer. This episode is a long one, but it is so, so interesting. We could have talked for hours. I hope you enjoy it, because I definitely did. Cheers. Uh, my mic is working, so let's start. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. This is your host, Nash. We have a very exciting episode today. We are in Cortez, Colorado. I'm here at Wild Edge Brewing Collective with the owner and brewer, Tucker. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you, Nash? I'm doing excellent. It's a beautiful day here. It's gorgeous fall day here. So you guys are a brewing collective. Is that different than a brewery? No. Um, a collective is not a, a legal term by any means. What what a collective is is a group of people coming around a common cause. And when we first started out um, conceptually creating Wild Edge Brewing Collective, um, we wanted this space to be uh, a very communal space. And our concept is that great beer builds great community. Ah. And so the word collective kind of embodies what myself and my business partners um, our, our mentality of what we wanted to bring to our local community. And we felt that collective encapsulated that a little bit more than the word company did. Oh, that's awesome. I never really thought about that. That's cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, we get a lot of questions as to whether we're a co-op, which is a different thing. But uh, no, a collective is just a group of people coming around a common cause. And our, our cause was that the belief that great beer builds great community. And speaking of the community, you guys are one of only a couple breweries right in this area, correct? Yeah, I think that there are... F- uh, three other breweries um, in our county. Um, we're kind of a county of three um, small towns separated by about 10 to 15 miles. And uh, each town has a brewery, and uh, Cortez has a couple breweries here. Um, we're, the, we're, the, we're the second real brewery here in town. Um, everybody does their own thing, and we all, we all kind of provide different things for our, both our um, immediate community and the towns that we're in, but also for the community of the county as a whole. That's awesome. Yeah. And before we get too much into the beer and the uh, Brewing Collective, let's let's start with you. You got a pretty wild story about how you got here. <laughs> yeah, how do you everybody always asks me how did I end up in in tiny little Cortez, Colorado, way out <laughs> here in uh, in the southwest corner of the state. Um so I uh went to uh undergrad in at Colorado College in Colorado Springs. Oh nice. And uh I was actually a, a anthropology major and um, got into doing archaeology. And so I traveled to Cortez uh, in 2005 for an archaeological field school um, based out of a a local archaeological nonprofit's campus called Crow Canyon, um, just outside of town here. And uh, my college advisor um, was very influential uh, with me kind of, you know, choosing that as a career path doing archaeology. And so in 2006, when I graduated college, I actually moved to an even smaller town called Bluff, Utah, um, just on the other side of the Utah border. okay, yeah, I know where that is. That's that's right near, or it's kind of near Monument Valley in a way. Exactly, yeah, Yeah. just a little bit east of Monument Valley. And um, I got on an archaeological survey project out there um, 
walking transects across uh, this big landform called Combe Ridge, which is just uh, full of, of great uh, both historic and prehistoric uh, ruins. And so I worked out there for three and a half years and then moved over to the quote-unquote big city of Cortez <laughs> um, in 2009 and started working for another um, uh uh, archaeological consulting firm and uh, did a lot of work for the Forest Service and BLM um, out here doing both excavations and uh, survey projects. Meanwhile, um, I was also homebrewing pretty avidly. Um, when my wife and I bought our property out here, we had a big app. We have a big apple orchard on the property, and so I started making hard apple cider, and uh. then had all this equipment and decided to try beer and bought an extract kit and. Uh, dove down that rabbit hole hard and, <laughs> and haven't come back up yet. Um, and, um, yeah, then I, I was kind of looking for a career change and something. So I was writing a business plan on the side starting in about 2013, just kind of one of these what if, uh, ideas and just like, well, you know, maybe it was, it was almost, it was more just uh, a fun activity for me to kind of conceptualize what I'd like to see as far as a brewery goes. And, uh, and then in uh, 2016, I quit my, my job doing archaeology and went in whole hog on trying to get this place open. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I have so was, many questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I, when I quit my job, I mean, obviously, I had been homebrewing a whole bunch. Um, I was brewing. I didn't work on Fridays. And oh, nice. so me and w- w- who is now one of my business partners, we would homebrew every Friday. And oh, we nice. did that for a couple of years and uh, doing everything from, you know, big stouts to IPAs. And then I started getting in more and more into the sour beers. And, um, you know, so we were we were putting out a lot of beer. We dumped a lot of beer, but that's all, all how you learn. And uh, and then when I when I finally um, actually quit my my job doing archaeology, um, I actually went back to my hometown of Rochester, New York, and did an internship at a at a friend's brewery back there just since I didn't have any experience on the professional side of brewing. Um, and I had, you know, 18,000 questions to ask, <laughs> to ask him. So I went back to my friend Andy's brewery called Swiftwater Brewing Company out of Rochester, New York. And, uh, he committed to, you know, let me shadow for a week. And I was there for almost four weeks and, uh, just doing everything. He was, he was very generous with his time. And, um, I got to see everything. I got to do everything from cleaning kegs to, pouring pints to brewing to going on deliveries with him so it was really a a great learning experience and proved that i did actually want to do this <laughs> wow okay so i have i think 100 questions great <laughs> let's do it um actually one thing that's kind of funny is in my past career we had off fridays as well so me and my one friend would brew every friday every off friday and we called ourselves uh off friday brewing company nice <laughs> <laughs> that's actually tim raymond shout out to tim uh that's kind of funny it's the same story same sure. way uh, so when you got out here for uh, your past career, did Mesa Verde National Park have a huge impact on that? I know there's a lot of history there. I mean, for my sake, when I first heard that, that, that was your background, I'm like, oh, it must be because of National Park right there. Sure. You know, I mean, uh, where we are in the Four Corners is one of the most archaeologically rich areas in the world. Oh, um, wow. You know, given our pretty arid climate out here, there's r- a really high preservation value of of not only you know above ground structures but subterranean structures and then all the artifacts that go with that i mean we don't have 
you know, generally we don't have huge floods that are washing away everything. We, we don't have a whole lot of rain that's, you know, causing structural degrade on or significant structural degrade on a lot of these structures. So there is a lot of history in this area that is very well preserved. Um, I never personally worked, um, up at Mesa Verde. Um, but I, I worked, um, in a lot of areas, you know, where the archaeology is very, very similar uh, okay. to Mesa Verde, um, canyons of the Ancients National Monument, yep, yep. and then a lot, pretty extensively over in what is now Bears Ears National Monument over, oh, nice. over in Utah. That was where I kind of cut my teeth. And uh, But, uh, yeah, I never actually got up and worked for the Park Service, but I, I, I certainly know a lot of people who do work up there. That's awesome. So yeah. it's just a gold mine for... Yeah, it is. And, you know, I mean, the way that that um, archaeology kind of works in the United States is that there's the um, there's laws that pretty much say any time the federal government or some outside company is going in and doing some sort of ground disturbing activity um, on federal land or state land, there's all these antiquities laws that have to go and have to be implemented as far as identifying sites and then um, mitigating any potential impacts to that. So, excuse me, I worked on everything from, uh, you know, big oil pads in this area that were going in to, oh, wow. you know, the Forest Service going in and doing some trail maintenance on some high alpine trails. Um, they, they, they both require archaeologists to go in there and make sure that none of the cultural resources are going to be going to be you know just destroyed or impacted negatively this is wild i didn't know any of this happened or existed it's just kind of yeah that's that's kind of behind the scenes for most (laughs) for most folks (laughs) um so so you're doing that full time and then you're brewing beer you said you started with extract brewing at home and then how did you make the switch from extract to all grain and on that question that's a very personal question to me because i first started home brewing i was like oh extract brewing like I got this. I can open a brewery. I know what I'm doing. And someone's like, no, all grains, the way it's actually brewed. And then I was like, wow, this is a whole nother beast. Sure. <laughs> I think I did three extract batches before I, I got to that point of being like, yeah, this is, this is great. This is easy. I want to like, <laughs> let's take it to the next step. Um, I am in just personally, I'm a, I'm a researcher. And so, you know, I got on online, I was getting books. I was, you know, reading everything I could just about, about the process and the science behind it. I mean, I come from a science background and so obviously the, 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 the chemistry and the biology of brewing beer is, is very interesting to me. Um, and I really liked the added level of control that you had by doing all grain brewing as opposed to just receiving your wort extract (laughs) in, in a, in a, in a bottle, like you, you could, you could, uh, control a lot more of the fermentability and the flavors and, you know, start using weird grains. You know, I mean, we use rye and buckwheat and unmalted wheat. And, you know, we, I, I, I like to bring in some kind of esoteric grains that not everybody uses. What's an esoteric grain? I don't know what that means. Just something that is uh, not mainstream, something that's a little, a little odd. Like we just, one of our beers on tap right now is brewed with buckwheat. Oh, okay. Like nobody makes, nobody uses buckwheat in beer. <laughs> I mean, a lot, a lot of gluten-free breweries do, but like okay. I added it to a brown ale and it's awesome. That's cool. And, and, you know, so I really like experimenting with that. And so that is kind of what attracted me to all grain brewing was that ability to experiment a little bit more. 
it's kind of the the customization and exactly. tweaking it to be the yeah. way you want it to be. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, brewing somebody else's recipe is great, but brewing something that you have tweaked to make distinctly your own is is something that's pretty special. Yeah, absolutely. So, man, your story is so interesting. I, again, I have so many questions. So, <laughs> Well, let's go. <laughs> uh, so when you decided you want to go into the beer, you said you left your past job and then went out to Rochester? Yep. So then you just went out there and you're like, hey, man, I want to learn about it. And your friend's like, yeah, come check it out. Yeah, I had uh, I, <laughs> I had emailed Andy um, shortly after the new year in 2016. And it a lot of what we have here now hinged on him saying yes <laughs> for me to come out. And, uh, you know, my folks still live back there. So I was able to go, you know, have free room and board for a little while Nice back there. And uh, Andy was super generous. Um yeah, so I drove across country and uh and ended up being being there for like three, three and a half weeks and hooked up a lot of Andy's friends who were doing you know, who were new new brewers. Um and you know, upstate New York has a pretty fantastic brewery scene right now and so yeah. I was able to make a lot of a lot of connections with folks back there that I mean I still keep in touch with a lot of the folks that I that I met back there and just just being able to see all of these you know they were established breweries, but they were only, they've only been established for a year or two or three. So um, it wasn't like going and visiting a big brewery that's been there forever. I was able to see the the complete spectrum of how people were building their breweries, and it was and you know it was really cool to see that that there's not just one way to make a brewery. Yeah, yeah. And people were making fantastic beer on just a myriad of. of different setups and it was it was it was completely wild and it it uh it gave me confidence that okay yeah i can you know i can probably figure this out and was able to steal a lot of ideas from how other people did things and you know be able to ask them you know what did you what do you wish that you had done differently and you know was able to take a lot of that to heart while we were designing this space wow and do you think a lot of the equipment that you're using now comes directly from your time spent up there with andy and rochester or did you get the like uh, the identical equipment they had, or did you kind of go on your own way? No, definitely. No, I definitely didn't just. I didn't just rip them off completely. Um, <laughs> it was more. Uh, I guess the biggest, aside from kind of the technical, like how do you go from homebrew to, you know, big stainless steel vats and yeah, yeah. pumps and all that. I mean, the the technical aspect was really great to be able to see, but also just learning about use of space within a brewery and seeing where other people, you know, wish that they had, we wish our, you know, we had had just, you know, an extra 10 square feet of area in our brew, you know, in our brew house, or we wish our walk-in cooler was a little bit bigger or, you know, I mean, just all these like little things that if you've never done it before, you're not necessarily going to think of. And, uh, and so I think that in our current space, we avoided a lot of potential pitfalls by me being able to, talk to people who have just gone through it and yeah, yeah. be able to ask them that question. What do you, what, what do you wish you had done differently? Yeah. And learning firsthand from the people you said they're doing it completely. I mean, as with everything, you know, you don't need to reinvent the wheel for something like brewery layout. Somebody's already figured out how to do it and you just need to modify it to your space. Yeah, absolutely. So how did you, what, what was making that decision like going, you know, I have this great job that i'm doing some really cool stuff and then you're like you know what i just want to leave it and go to beer uh was that that must be nerve-wracking 
Oh, it was terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> it was terrifying. My wife and I talked about it a lot. <laughs> um, you know, there, there were there were some things just changing in my life personally, and there were some things changing at the company that I was working for, and it and it seemed like, um, it seemed like the right time. Like yeah, yeah. there wasn't going to be another chance for me to do this. And I'm the type of person that likes to jump at opportunity um, when opportunity presents itself. And uh, you know, I mean, it was it was a it was a calculated move for sure. Um, but I mean, I don't, I don't regret it at all right now. I mean, I, I absolutely love what I do and, um, but, uh, no, I mean, it was, it was a lot of back and forth. I mean, it was a lot of, I, you know, I waited until I had business partners like signed on and ready to go, you know, to at least give me a good shot of absolutely actually being able to make this work. Yeah. Yeah because I only had one shot. <laughs> <laughs> it had to work. <laughs> it had to work and and so far knock on knock on wood it's uh, it seems to be working. You just knocked on a barrel by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so is it is the role you're in now is it everything you imagined or what's different from what you pictured yourself, you know, a couple years ago being where you are now? Like is this exactly what you thought it would be like? Oh, I guess yes and no. I mean, I didn't I didn't exactly know what to expect. You know, I mean, I have never run my own business before. I'm not a I'm not a business major. I don't know that. So I mean, learning the whole business side of it has definitely been something that has taken me, you know, it's it's taken a lot of work. Um um it's this whole thing is is far more work than you could have ever imagined. Um but, you know, that being said, we are uh, and well, me personally, like I'm being able to produce awesome creative beers yeah, yeah. and, um, you know, we're currently sitting back here in our, in our barrel cellar, uh, surrounded by oak barrels of full of mixed culture aged sour beers. And, uh, you know, that was my, that was my dream as a home brewer was <laughs> to be able to, you know, have a barrel to brew into. And, uh, uh, tomorrow I'm filling up our 27th and 28th barrel. Um, and, and on Thursday this week, we're putting, uh, two and a half barrels worth of beer into bottles for another bottle release. So, um, creatively, I absolutely, it, it's more than I could have ever dreamed of, um, as far as what I've been able to do. Um, you know, I mean, running a business is hard. I mean, it is, there's a lot of sleepless nights. I wake up in the middle of the night and my brain gets going and I don't sleep much the rest of the night, just thinking about little things here and there. Um, you know, I'm lucky that I've got absolutely wonderful staff, which makes my life infinitely easier and allows me to go home and see my wife and daughter and not be working 16 hour days, six days a week anymore, <laughs> like, like we did when I, when we first opened. But, um, um, yeah, you know, I mean, I was, I was ready for a new adventure in life and I had a hint of an idea of what it might be like, but, um, it overall, it has been absolutely wonderful. That's an incredible story. That's, <laughs> that's wild. I feel very lucky. <laughs> is it? Is, is, do you think it kind of goes to that saying, um, if you love what you do for a living, you never work a day in your life? Do you ever feel that way, or is it still some days you're like, damn it? <laughs> There's definitely some days where it's work. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it is, it is, it's really gratifying when, we, when that tap room's full and everybody's enjoying something that you've created with your hands and 
that is your idea. And when we have events here that are able to, you know, we work a lot with local nonprofits for fundraising events and, and, and things like that. And so it's, it's really gratifying to be able to not only have people enjoy your beer, but have your beer be able to do some good within your, within your community. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the beer. So we're at an altitude of just over 6,000 feet here. Yep. What's it like brewing beer at this altitude? I know, I think water boils differently here yep. than it would be uh, back on the East Coast. Yeah, our water boils at about between 200 and 201 degrees. Okay. So significantly lower than, uh, than at sea level. Um, I've never brewed really at anything but altitude. So <laughs> as far as like knowing exactly like a huge difference mm-hmm. between the two. I don't have a whole lot of personal experience. Um, I guess the only thing that I've kind of had to adjust for with that is that is um, alpha acids in your hops don't isomerize quite as well at the lower boiling temperature. So for a couple of my beers, I have actually increased the calculated IBUs to combat that and I, th- I i mean i think that that is because of our our lower boiling temperature but um like i said i haven't brewed at anything but i mean they, compared to my house this is about 500 feet lower so this is actually the lowest elevation i've ever personally uh brewed at with my own recipes <laughs> that's so interesting the, the altitude it's like something i guess maybe on a stubborn person that's always kind of grown up at sea level yeah coming out here and like realizing that we're at these crazy altitudes and weather's different and like yep. everything it's yeah, I mean, we de- you know, we definitely, um, I mean, with the altitude also comes, um, you know, we're in a very arid climate where there's not a lot of humidity here. And so I struggle with that with uh, my barrels, actually. Oh. And having, um, you know, just having some uh, dehydration issues with the wood staves themselves um, over time, especially in those, in the, in the top staves that, um, you know, we, you get some evaporation out of the barrels, which I'd be interested in actually talking to somebody who's done barrel research just to see how barrels act differently at elevation versus sea level, because you both have the lack of humidity up here. And with barrels, you're getting micro oxygenation through the staves, but we have 15% less oxygen up here than you do at sea level. This is wild. <laughs> yeah, and so this is, you know, hopefully at some point I can talk to somebody who's a lot smarter than myself and just see if anybody has actually looked at what happens in a barrel at elevation versus what happens in a barrel at sea level. This could be a whole book right here. I think we just had a million-dollar idea. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the barrel. So, yeah, we're sitting in between them. We might as well talk about them. Where did these barrels come from? Um, so all of the barrels that we have are, are used wine barrels um, and about... A third of them have come from Napa um, in California, and then we have started working pretty closely with a local vineyard, um, Sutcliffe Vineyards, which is just down McElmo Canyon to the west of here by about 20 miles, Um, and we've been picking up a whole bunch of spent barrels from them. Um, You know, they're using them for their red wines, and and some of their whites go into barrel as well. Um, And then I think that they're doing... They're using them for like three to five runs of wine, and then at that point, the oak character is stripped out of them, and and uh, it it's not serving the purpose that they need, and uh, so then they sell them to me, and 
I put beer in them. <laughs> and and what what beers are you putting in them right now? Um, so we've starting out. I did a whole uh, variety of kind of base beer, not styles, but just base beer recipes. All of them are kind of a basic golden ale. All of them have you know are a base of uh, Colorado grown and malted uh, two row barley, and then. Um, a variety of either oats or malted wheat, unmalted wheat. There's spelt in some of them. There's rye in some of them. And um, starting about a year and a little over a year ago, we started getting some results. Like we started getting beer that was ready to be consumed. Um, And at that point, we were able to say, oh, well, we really liked how this one came out. This is the recipe that we put in there. This was our process. And so... We're kind of carrying what worked forward and getting rid of what didn't work um, based on that first, you know, run of 10 barrels that we did. Um, We have done both um, in-barrel fermentation where we're just, I'm racking wort right off of the kettles through the chiller into barrels and the primary fermentation and aging both happens in within the oak. Um, and we've also done, I've done a, a clean primary with, uh, our Saison strain in stainless, let that ferment out, uh, for a week and then rack it into barrels with, um, a, a mixture of, uh, various different Britannomyces and lactobacillus. Well, say that five times fast. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, and what do you guys think you guys are doing differently with your beers now than that's kind of different from everybody in the area? You know, we're really the only ones that are doing um, barrel-aged sours. We're sours uh, just in general. I mean, we have a pretty robust kettle souring program as well. Um, There's a lot of people that knock kettle sours, but I'm a firm believer that, I mean, kettle sours and barrel-aged sours are two different beers entirely. Your barrel-aged sours are going to be far more complex, far more interesting, Um, but kettle sours are just nice and tart, and we fruit all of ours, and they're... they're, uh, they're they're just a fun palette to play with and really be able to highlight fruit and have this nice light effervescent tart beverage um and so we're really you know there's a couple other breweries in the region that do some sours but i would say that we're probably the most sour focused brewery um in in our immediate area here um and it's something that i'm looking to expand we've um just increased our barrel capacity in our barrel cellar here by uh, almost 50% in the last two months. And we've started throwing a lot of beer into into bottles because um, before we were doing only draft-only oh, okay. uh, barrel-aged sours. We have a barrel-aged uh, dedicated draft line on our tap lineup. And uh, we kept having people wanting the beer to go. And I just we didn't want to fill our 32-ounce cans with them or fill our growlers with them just for quality control issues and uh having them in the bottle um is great and so we have those in some high-end restaurants around here we've got them in liquor stores and then people can obviously purchase them out of the tap room as well and which one of those of of the barrel aged ones do you think have been either the most popular or one that you that, that that's been your favorite so the most the most popular has been one called um bloom and bramble which is a uh, um it was a single barrel run. It was this fantastic barrel that I threw almost 20 pounds of local whole local raspberries into. 
and let that ferment out for a month or two months. And then um, when we ran it into the packaging tank, we steeped hibiscus petals in it for two and a half days. So it's just this beautiful, clear, bright red beer, um, super effervescent, nice and floral, and just this bold raspberry knock you across the face, raspberry <laughs> aroma and flavor. And that one has sold the best, I mean, partly because of the color. Um, <laughs> it looks great. <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. And uh, and partly because, I mean, people, are, people love fruit in their beers. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're getting ready to release a beer um, probably right after Thanksgiving um, that we're calling Desert Vine, which is a beer-wine hybrid where we took um, a barrel of um, just kind of our, our golden base sour um, that was mixed, uh, had a, gone through a mixed fermentation in the bar- in a Chardonnay barrel from uh, Sutcliffe Vineyards that I had mentioned before. And we actually got a bunch of Chardonnay grapes from them and re-fermented it on 100 pounds of Chardonnay grapes. And then back into the barrel um, for another month aging. And now it's in bottle and it is just you you kind of have to be like is is this beer is this sparkling <laughs> wine what what is this but it's it's got a beautiful acidity clean white grape finish to it um so i'm really excited for that one to come out and then thursday we're brewing a barrel blend of three different barrels with one of which is pretty highly fruited with apricots and we're calling that one apricadabra <laughs> <laughs> so th- these are pretty pretty uh intense recipes how does that whole process work do you just sit down one day and say you know what we're gonna brew this beer with hibiscus and then just kind of go with it or i'd like to say that all of the choices that we make are premeditated (laughs) (laughs) but a lot of it is you know tasting through i mean especially on the barrel side like i'm a firm believer in that um the barrel is going to dictate what you do with it and the aging is going to dictate. So, um, for example, for the, the broom and Bl- the bloom and bramble barrel, like it had raspberry characteristics to it. It had berry characteristics to the base beer before we added raspberries and hibiscus is something I had been wanting to mess around with. And I thought that that would be a fun thing to kind of play off of that raspberry character. In addition to a, just a ton of raspberries in there as well. Um, and the base beer for desert vine, it tasted like white wine that the beer did. And so we decided to play off of that and continue that trend and just, you know, see what adding white wine grapes to it did. And, and so far it worked out, but, uh, um, the barrel seller is, I know what base beer is, you know, going to give us a good, you know, just base grain bill. And then the microbes that are in the barrels and the barrels themselves kind of dictate the rest. And I just, go based on what they're telling me that's that's interesting it's, it kind of goes back to what you said earlier about kind of having that freedom of creativity and kind of totally going with the flow in a way yeah you know i mean it's we uh i'm actually attempting to quote unquote recreate bloom and bramble right now um because that's been such a good seller and we're gonna do the last one was just a 50 gallon run of it and we're gonna try to do two oak barrels which will put me at you know over 100 gallons of it and you know, we're going to treat it the same way that we did that first run, but it's going to be like a vintage of wine where every bottling run of it every year is going to be a little bit different based on, 
the barrels that it was in and the base beer and how those microbes react. And then just the fruit that we get every year is going to be a little bit different. I mean, beer is very much an agricultural product. And so, you know, we can kind of have these quote unquote brands, but they're, (laughs) it's not like a macro beer brand where you're expecting to get the same product every single time and that's 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 also the beautiful part of it in my mind is that you've got every every year in a bottle and that's a little snapshot of that year you know of what the raspberry crop was that year for example and do you have a little private stash of like one bottle from each batch that you keep then i i do have an extensive cellar at my house really (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) yeah yeah so we are definitely archiving some of these and we'll we'll hold back a few cases of everything that we do just for, you know, we can do vertical tastings at some point, maybe if we don't drink at all. <laughs> <laughs> and you guys are brewing and just from looking at your tap tap room board, you guys have all different styles of beer. You know, it's not just sours, not just right. barrel You guys have a little bit. Oh, I mean, right now we're drinking the IPA number nine. IPA called? number nine. Yeah. And this is the, you know, going into it, um, the IPA, I, I mean, I'm a big fan of IPAs. Um, and you know, this is definitely more of the, on the hazier side of IPA. That's why I picked it. (laughs) Yeah. It's, you know, it's got some nice juicy characteristics to it, but I knew that this was going to be a, a beer that I wanted to mess around with. And also one of our principles here in the tap room is that we have a pretty heavily rotated tap list. And so I didn't want to lock myself into a single IPA. And so as opposed to trying to come up with some creative beer name for all these different iterations of IPA that I knew we were going to be coming out with, I decided we were just going to number them. And um, we got to nine and nine has stuck. And we've been doing that for, I think we've released nine for the first time in February. Okay. Um, And, you know, I mean, to the consumer, it's stayed more or less the same, but I've been definitely tinkering with it a little <laughs> bit as I've seen things that need to change. And um, but uh, overall, um, you know, it's a it's a double dry hopped hazy IPA. I mean, it it drinks real well. Um, but yeah, we do a lot of different styles. I mean, we've got our we obviously have our sours, and that's kind of one of the things that we're known for. But um, our most popular beer is called Monkey Wrench, and it's a um, it's a, uh, pale ale brewed with citra and Huel melon. And that was kind of the culmination of almost a year of doing, um, we were doing a single hop pale ale series from the day that we opened, just kind of really using the pale ale as a canvas to highlight all these different hop styles and varieties that we have available to us as brewers these days. And, um, it was December last year, so Monkey Wrench has been on tap for coming up on a year now. Um, I just decided to see what Huel Mellon and Citra did together, and happened to like it. And it's been a, <laughs> it's become a crowd favorite. I think if I was, we took it off tap for a month and a half, and I received a lot of crap from our regulars. <laughs> Everybody's up in arms. Yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, we actually replaced it with a with a beer that I'm pretty proud of called Juniperus. That is, uh, it's a, a pale ale that's brewed with uh, juniper. Oh. Um, so we actually incorporate juniper boughs and berries into every step of the brewing process um, from the mash all the way through. We, you know, with the dry hops, we're also throwing juniper berries in there. And uh, we actually do that as a benefit beer for the local land conservancy. And so we, we donate a buck from every pint 
to the local land conservancy so we just we just cut them a pretty big check the other week when we finally kicked juniperus but that that one was a it, it, that that's the second year we've done it and it quickly became another people people remembered how much they liked it from last year and so even though we got some crap for taking monkey ranch down we uh people got over it <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of goes back to the whole community thing you talked about before you know supporting totally. others yep. and yeah, you know the the land, the local land conservancy here is actually um, how I met one of my business partners. Oh. I used to be on the land conservancy board um, with actually one of my other business partners who I've known forever. He was on the board as well, and um, and then my third my third business partner John um, was the executive director of the land conservancy, and so we have we have very close ties to the to the Montezuma Land Conservancy here, and um, we like to like to help them out as much as possible, and so doing a custom beer for them seemed, seemed like a pretty fun thing. And we always, they put on a beer festival here called the Harvest Beer Fest in the beginning of September every year. And so we timed the release of Juniperus the last two years to kind of coincide right wow. around that time for their beer festival. And, um, yeah, they're a great organization. We love working with them. And, and uh, I do like Juniperus. It always, it, once again, that's another beer that turns out different every year yeah, um, yeah. based on the conditions. Um you know, we're in a pretty awful drought right now. And because of that, the juniper trees around here did not put on juniper berries oh. this summer. And so I ended up using a lot more juniper boughs and branches this year than I did the previous year. And I personally think it, it actually made a better beer, but it was one of those things. Like it was this environmental factor that caused me to have to, you know, call, call an audible on this <laughs> recipe and, and, and hope it worked. And luckily it did. That's great. In the tap room, you guys have a sign that says tap lines clean this date, which is awesome. I've never seen that before. And from my very basic knowledge of the beer world, a clean tap line really affects everything in the beer, correct? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. I mean, as with anything in brewing, you know, half of brewing is just, you know, cleaning and sanitizing. And so that, that needs to translate to your to your delivery system, to your consumer as well. So, uh, yeah, we, I religiously clean our tap lines every two weeks. Um, so twice a month, I'm stripping apart our whole tap system, everything from the couplers to the faucets all get pulled off, um, and washed. And then we do, we daisy chain all our tap lines together and I'm pumping caustic and sanitizer through there to get them as, as clean as humanly possible. And, uh, and we also try to stay up on all of our wholesale accounts as well, where we have beer on tap lines in restaurants, um, locally. I mean, we try to get there, um, you know, we usually don't get there twice a month, but we're pretty much always there at least once a month cleaning people's tap lines. Um, you know, I mean, it, it does affect the taste of the beer. If you haven't had a tap, if your tap line hasn't been cleaned in a long time, it's going to, it's going to provide, you know, have the potential to impart some off flavors, um, to your product, which is the last thing that you want is somebody to have a bad experience with your beer. Um, it's terrifying sending your beer out of your own business because you no longer have complete control out of it or complete control over how that beer is presented and served. And we take great pride in our product. And so we, we both try to get out there and clean our tap lines and educate all of our wholesale accounts as far as what they're pouring. And if there's a story behind that beer and, you know, tasting notes and, even even going as far as like making recommendations to what this would pair well with on their menus, um, but yeah, tap line cleaning is a huge thing for us, and we we replace our draft lines um, about every eighteen eighteen months to a year, so we're coming up on on needing to on needing to do that. 
but uh yeah i mean it's just it's it's just one one more thing that needs cleaning so so you go to other places that are serving your beer and clean the tap lines there uh, we clean the tap line that we're on yeah Holy cow. Yeah. Is that common practice for most breweries or is that just... In this area, it is. I know there's a lot of places, like when I was back east, like there's a lot of tap line cleaning services that come in that hire, you know, that restaurants hire to come in and clean their tap lines, but that doesn't seem to be as prevalent out here. So yeah, we go in, if we don't clean them, nobody does. Yeah. And you you brought up a really good point that I've never actually even thought about the fact that, you know, you make this beer, you say this beer is perfect and you send it out. But once you send it out, you almost have no control over it. And if someone isn't cleaning their tap lines, then right. that could really skew everything. Sure. I mean, you know, we, we really look at our wholesale accounts as another form of advertising for us. And we want uh, people who are getting a pint of our beer elsewhere to have as good of an experience with that pint of beer as they um, as they would here and you know flavor is obviously flavor and aroma and the visuals of it are, are a big component and if something is off in your tap lines and you're starting to get some funky flavors or if it's not pouring right because it's all gummed up uh, you know I mean that's that's going to have a that that could be the difference between somebody having dinner down on Main Street and saying all right we're just going to call it for a night and somebody saying great we're going to go walk up and check out this brewery that we just had this awesome that's pint from point. wow so I mean you know it's just it's all it's all about maintaining your image and we are very proud of our high quality product and our high quality experience we want that to translate um as much as possible to where other people can can consume our beer. Now is it true they say I I forget the numbers but people say you know brewing beer is 10% brewing beer and 90% cleaning or something like oh, that. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I've it, I've had a very long day today, and most of it's been cleaning. <laughs> yep. No, every day I'm you know cleaning something. Anytime we transfer a beer out of the fermenter or the bright tank, like that thing gets stripped down completely. Everything gets cleaned, uh, reassembled, sanitized. I mean, everything is uh, you know mopping constantly. I mean, just trying to keep everything as as clean as possible. And you being the the brewer. Do you, is it always you doing that alone or do you have a, the rest of your staff come in and help you out or do you prefer to do it alone? How's that kind of, kind of thing? <laughs> um, uh, one of our employees, uh, Graham has started helping me on the production side one day a week. Um, and I usually make him do most of the cleaning on the days <laughs> that he's working with me. <laughs> Sorry, Graham. <laughs> uh, um, wow. That's wild that the. The cleaning required is actually true. It's not just, you know, oh, it's oh, nice. yeah. it's on. No, I heard somebody, uh, one brewer say once that, you know, brewers are just glorified janitors. <laughs> and, I mean, really with the amount of cleaning solution that we, we use on a daily basis, it's probably true. <laughs> wow. But it's all worth it at the end of the day when you can sit down and have a beautiful pint of beer. That you made. That I made, right. Absolutely. Or that somebody else made. Yeah, no, it's a it's a great thing. and And it really, I mean, you know, even on a home, I learned very early home brewing that clean equipment makes better beer, and so it's something that we don't we don't sacrifice here in the you know in the even in the interest of time. Like I'll always do the take the hard road for for cleaning, um, just because it makes it makes a huge difference. And that kind of leads me into one of the questions I want to ask you was. What's one of the biggest problems you've run into with brewing a batch of beer? Has it been a cleaning issue that has been like, wow, this whole batch tastes like garbage because I forgot <laughs> to do X? You know, the the only issues we've ever had, and this was this was early on, was um, it was actually yeast issues. 
Um, uh, I, I had underpitched a batch of beer, and uh, um, that afternoon, as soon as I found out something was something was off, um, I ordered a microscope, and we do cell counts and viability tests now, so that I know I know that the yeast that we harvest off of a previous batch is is ready to go, and I know how much to pitch, so that we um, we don't have to you know, dump any more beer. I mean, I've been very lucky in that we have not had to dump much beer. Um, and you know, we, from the onset, we said we will always dump a beer that myself and my business partners would not want to drink as opposed to trying (laughs) to serve it. And it's tight. I mean, it hurts. Yeah. You know I mean? That there's a lot of time and money wrapped up in a batch of beer. And so, you know, I would say one of the best investments we've made in this brewery was a microscope just to, to try to eliminate, the chance of having under pitching of of your yeast, and do you do that with every batch of beer that, or just every any batch couple? that I'm repitching um, a yeast culture into? Okay, um, yeah. So we'll generally um, repitch a yeast culture three to four times before we purchase a new one. Oh, okay. Um, that's just kind of a a standard that I set in place shortly after opening and kind of. Getting the getting my feet underneath me as far as my faith in my uh, microbial knowledge and 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 um, you know yeast is expensive, but dumping a batch of beer is far more expensive. Yeah. And so I mean, and and I've also noticed you know in some cases in some of the yeast that we use, I've noticed drift after certain numbers of generations. And so now I know, like, the yeast that we use in our in our IPA 9, I don't like where it goes after the fourth generation. And so I, I get a new pitch of yeast in, um, and we and we start again. And, and that, that also allows for a little more consistency. That's wild. That is so – that, so being someone who is, you know, not an expert in beer, that sounds so intimidating to me. And what uh, – I mean, how, how do you get in – Obviously, lots of research, but you know, how do you get over the fact that you know yeast itself is its own beast and its own career path in a way? How oh, do yeah. you dive into that? Uh, I mean, I would. I know enough about yeast to be dangerous. I don't <laughs> call myself an expert at all. I mean, there. I would love to sit down and talk with a yeast guy for or a <laughs> yeast gal for a long time and just ask all these questions. Um, it's really intimidating. I mean, there's some great resources out there these days though. Um, between the internet and some publications that the Brewers Association have put out. I mean, there's, there's a lot of great information if you can wrap your head around it. Cause a lot of it's really technical. Oh yeah. I've tried super scientific. Um, I've tried to read the yeast book like four <laughs> times and have ended up just cherry picking certain sections that as I've needed them, but it's, uh, it's something that I probably should just be like, all right, this winter I'm reading the yeast book cover to cover. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's interesting because brewing is such a uh, conglomerate of all these different sciences. And, and what's kind of interesting is that my past career, archaeology, was a, con- con- was a conglomerate of all these different sciences as well. And... You know, in archaeology, we were using, you know, geology and 
um, you know, obviously, uh, uh, you know, there was psychology elements and there was sociological elements and there was, I mean, even chemistry elements. And so moving to brewing, it's almost kind of a similar uh, conglomeration of science and the fact that you need to know a little bit about biology, you need to know a little bit about chemistry, you need to know a little bit about physics, you need, you know, I mean, and it's just, um, I don't, I definitely don't claim to be a master in any of them or even be a master brewer, but it's, it's, uh, I, I like the fact that there's always something more to learn. And there's always something that I feel like, oh, well, let me look that up. And, you know, luckily we live in the day of the internet where I can usually just get on my, <laughs> on my, on my iPhone and, you know, while I'm brewing, figure out some sort of technical question that I have. But, uh, no, I, I, I do enjoy the science aspect of it for sure. Going along with that, you know, speaking of yeast, where are you guys getting all your ingredients now? Are you guys getting them locally? Are you guys getting your different greens from various parts of the country? Yeah, uh, kind of a combination of both. I mean, we, uh, get mo we get all of our base malt uh, from Colorado Malting Company out of Alamosa. Oh, nice. Um and I've worked with them for a long time. I was home brewing with their malt um prior to opening Wild Edge. Um and so we, you know, that probably consists about almost 90% of the malt that we use is from them. Um you know, we use then a lot of, you know, breeze products and you know, we're bringing in um other specialty malts from elsewhere. Um hops kind of you know we're we're purchasing off of the spot spot market um we're not really big enough and i'm not really comfortable enough to sign a contract for x number of hundreds of pounds of one variety of hop yeah um so you know we kind of pick those up where we where we can um definitely interested in starting to use more local hops i mean north of us kind of the montrose and grand valley area is starting to have a have a bit of a culture of hop farming up there and um, so hopefully at some point we can start utilizing a bit more, a bit more local hops. And then, um, for our barrel aging stuff, I try to use as much local whole fruit as possible, working with various farmers who are, you know, producing peaches or raspberries. Or so do you go to like just one of the farmer's markets and just buy a, a, a shit ton of peaches or do you just <laughs> email them and say, Hey, I want to, I want to brew a beer with your stuff. Generally have- people come in and tell me that what they have and if we're in need of it, I'll I'll buy some. But um, I I probably should go to the farmers market and start cherry picking a little bit more. But <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so far it's just been you know customers are like, hey, we grow raspberries, or I you know I have access to all these peaches, and <laughs> so we order in a few cases of them and and take it from there. That's awesome. That's I mean that's again I don't I mean going back to the whole community thing. That's so awesome that it kind of just happens in your tap room like hey i have a bunch of peaches like yeah. meanwhile i thought it was like this business deal where you like got in a suit and went to the farmer and he's in a suit and he's like i'll give you two batches of oh, peaches. you don't know me well enough you think i own a suit <laughs> 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 yeah i mean i guess it's uh like you said it's it's awesome to hear that it is the local kind of community and people just yeah talking. i mean it's a very you know a lot of what happens here is very organic just as far as you know um the people that we meet and the people that we work with. And, um, you know, obviously we, uh, always want, you know, the highest quality product that we can get. And luckily we live in a pretty rich agricultural area and we have a lot of local agricultural products to choose from. Um, like I, we, uh, next week we're going to release a, a beer that we do called Palmestique, which is a Belgian style triple that is fermented with, um, apple cider. 
in Whoa. it. And um, we did this last year, but last year we didn't have an apple crop in Montezuma County um, due to a, a really late frost. And But this year we had a huge apple crop, and so I actually worked with our friends over at uh, Fenceline Cider out of Mancus and went over there and picked up 30 gallons of juice from them that they had pressed from locally harvested apples and uh, pitched that into our beer. And and so now we have this great beer-cider hybrid that I'm very excited to come out next week. And do you guys usually have cider on tap here as well? Yes, we always have cider on tap. Um, and since Fenceline has gotten on online over there, they opened up probably coming up on a year ago or maybe just over a year ago, we've, we've tried to, uh, you know, more or less have them on tap all the time. Um, they, they produce a great product and, um, you know, it's just, it's one more thing to try to, you know, uh, uh, you know, bring more people in through the door by not just being a beer place. We have local wine as well. Um, so we try to cater to a variety of different tastes. That's awesome. And that's ideal for someone like me because my girlfriend's actually gluten-free, so she can't have traditional beer. So when we find a brewery that has wine or cider, we're like, oh, we have to go. Like, this is great. Yeah, you know, and that was part of the, you know, there's there's pretty much two different types of licenses that you can get. You can get a a manufacturer's license, which allows you to just produce beer and you can have a small tap room, but you can't serve anything else. Whereas we went with a brew pub license, which uh, requires a small food component, which we do. But it also allows us to serve cider, other people's beer, wine. Um, we could serve liquor if we wanted. We don't currently, but um, it just allows us to have a more diverse menu. And in a small town like this, that's really important that you can appeal to as many people as possible because our potential customer pool is so much lower than in a lot of places in this country because our whole county only has 30,000 people. Whereas, you know, in Denver, that's like 12 city blocks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's different. And that's yeah. interesting to hear, you know, it's, you have to, you kind of have to appeal to more people. Exactly. To, I mean, we have to be as appealing as possible and, you know, talking to, we talked to a lot of people before we opened the brewery here, you know, would you come if it was just beer? Would you come if we didn't have a reliable source of food? Would you come, you know, and it was you know, we heard from a lot of people, no, I'd let, you know, I drink beer, but my significant other doesn't drink beer or, you know, oh, well, you know, I might come in for one beer, but if you didn't have any food, I probably wouldn't stay around for too long. And so, um, you know, we decided to go with uh, the more inclusive license that allows us to do a whole lot more. And is it harder going for that license than it is a manufacturer's license? Uh, I doubt it. <laughs> I, I I don't think so. I mean, having never gone for a manufacturer's yeah, license, I, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, um, I have. They're both probably a pain in the ass. And that and that kind of goes with uh, a question I had, which was Colorado beer laws. So I know there's sure. one law that's. Uh, I don't know if it's unique to here, but it's definitely unique compared to Massachusetts and New Jersey, where I have done most of my drinking. Is that if you guys brew like a whole bunch of beer, you can literally put the keg in your car and bring it to a restaurant, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. In Colorado. We, you can self-distribute, which is the reason there are over, I think, 450 breweries in Colorado now is because it, it, it's easy to get your product out there. Um, I would say a quarter of our accounts, I literally put a keg on a dolly and walk down the street to go (laughs) deliver it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's great. Um, 
for sure. You know, I mean, as as breweries grow and it's something we're coming up on right now is just like as we're looking to get our beer a little further afield. Do we continue to self-distribute? Because that, you know, once you start having to travel long distances, you know, you're needing to pay somebody, you're needing to have a vehicle. You know, I mean, there's just there's a whole lot of overhead over that versus, you know, actually signing with some small scale distributor that would be interested in distributing your product. Um, and that, that is a question that we'll probably be coming up against here, you know, in the next year or so, um, specifically for our barrel age stuff as we continue to bottle it and are looking to get that, looking to get that a little further afield. And what did that look like when you first started out, when you, you know, I guess first opened your doors, did you bring a bottle of your beer to a local liquor store and say, Hey, try this beer. If you like it, can you put it on your shelf? <laughs> No, we 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 opened saying that we weren't going to take on wholesale accounts for the first year. Oh, okay. Because we didn't know what our taproom consumption was going to be and I didn't want to get overextended. You know, being on a on a five barrel system, you know, that's not a whole lot of whole lot of beer and I didn't want to be uh losing out on taproom sales because I was needing to supply wholesale accounts. And <clears throat> I mean, as with every well-laid plan, like it all goes out the window as soon as you get going. I mean, we took on a, our first <laughs> wholesale accounts uh, within six months of opening um, once we saw that we were going to have the capacity. And we've slowly built built up. I think we have 12 wholesale accounts right now between liquor stores and restaurants. And this past summer, we added one more fermenter just to be able to really keep up with, with our keg accounts. Um but no, I mean, you know, we've kind of, we've kind of organically grown. Um, I'm not a big proponent of doing these knee jerk reactions, especially in a business where, you know, oh, we had a great, you know, first six months, let's go take out a huge loan, expand our capacity. And mm -hmm. then only to find out that, you know, the market's not there to support this huge loan that we took out. So everything that we, that we do is kind of this slow, cautious, calculated growth is, is especially with wholesale accounts because i don't i don't want to take on wholesale accounts and i'll and then just be able to be like sorry you know we're out of beer yeah, you know, yeah. that i, I don't want to do that because a lot of our wholesale accounts are are my friends too like i know these <laughs> people i mean these are we work with a lot of small businesses here and you know the last thing i want to do is is screw over our neighbors and and by you know not being able to provide them with a steady source of beer and so um, you know, we do, we do the best that we can and, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll continue expanding as we can moving forward. That's great. And you no, know, you are in, in some way, just from talking to you this past hour, you were kind of living the craft beer geek dream. You know, you have this career, you quit it, then you start making these kick-ass beers and you have this, uh, you know, great role now. What advice would you give to anyone who is looking to kind of take that next step in the beer world? Oh man, that that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, find the niche. You know, there's a lot of breweries where everybody's doing the same thing. You know, find whether it's the experience that you provide or the beers that you're producing, but find your niche, um, and then do it. You know, do it the best that you possibly can. I mean, there's there's no room these days for crappy beer. Like that just it doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Like you, you won't survive. And so, I mean, you need to take great pride in the product that you make and, and do something unique. 
um, you know, from my perspective, I mean, the days of, of trying to be the biggest craft brewery are, are over. Like we already have those. So, you know, our model is definitely more be the, the corner watering hole and serve your local community and, you know, expand regionally as you can, but, uh, you know, don't expect to be the next Sierra Nevada or the next new Belgium. You know I mean? It seems like those, those days are dead and you're, if that's what you wanted to do, you're, you're 25 years too late for that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, find your niche and, and, and be the, be the best at it that you can be. That's like that quote that I have no idea again, who said this one, but I think about it almost too much. Whenever I'm at the store and I'm looking to buy a beer, I always in the back of my head. I hear life's too short to drink bad to beer, drink bad beer. Yeah. And I'm always like, all right, I'll get, I'll get the good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Heck yeah. No, there's, we live in a, in a golden age of craft beverages, whether it's beer or wine or spirits or cider. I mean, it's uh, we're very lucky that we live when we live as far as alcohol goes. <laughs> and, and do you guys have, you mentioned, you know, local and the community and, do you have big plans of one day being able to distribute your beer all over a bunch of states or are you taking it, like you said, year by year, kind of things, see how it goes? You know, I mean, uh, this past year we started distributing up towards Telluride. Like we're in Telluride, Colorado now, and that's an hour and 15 minutes up the highway from us. Um, I could see us expanding to the front range at some point, but not anytime soon, probably. Okay. Yeah. No, I don't have, I don't have big dreams of that. So, so one question I think I'm, I'm going to start asking on this podcast is: What is your funniest and/or craziest beer story that you've had, or what's just one crazy story? Well, of ones that I'm, you know, actually willing to admit about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess I was in here one afternoon just before we opened. Um, our bar manager, Amy had just come in, she was prepping the kitchen and I had just started, or I just finished transferring beer from our fermenter to our bright tank. And I was taking apart the hoses and I was transferring. I had just started the process or started, started implementing, doing all of our transfers using CO2 using pressure as opposed to using some sort of pump. And I had forgotten that, that our, that, (laughs) that the fermenter was at, you know, five or eight PSI. And I took off, I forget what part. And I had a sight glass coming off of the racking arm and I was standing in front of it and I must've opened the ball, the butterfly valve or something. And it was, just between my legs and I ended up blowing yeast all over my crotch and all (laughs) over the wall 25 feet away and it sounded like this gun going off and Amy came running out figuring I was dead or something (laughs) but that was uh it's funny now but it wasn't super funny then as I was a having to change pants and then b having to spend the next hour cleaning yeast off of the wall and off of the kettles and Yikes. off of everything. <laughs> so I haven't done that since, <laughs> which is the important thing, right? A good learning experience. Exactly. Exactly. Um, all right. We are at over an hour. This has been awesome. Tucker, thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's my uh, pleasure. The beer was delicious. Your story is pretty crazy. And uh, I'm glad we took the time today and to sit down. Thank you again. Of course. It was a pleasure to have you here and, 
always willing to talk about beer. If someone wanted to get in contact with you, find you guys online, have a beer, how would they do that? Sure. Well, uh, come visit us. Come visit our tap room. We're in downtown Cortez, Colorado. Come come over and, you know, we've got some great hiking and biking and boating and fishing opportunities here. And so come out here and explore the great wildlands that we have around us. And then afterwards, grab a beer with us. Um where you can find us at wildedgebrewing.com, and then we have a pretty strong Facebook and Instagram pres- presence as well. So like us on there, and I do my best with the social media, trying to put up interesting things and nice photos of what we're doing and what I'm up to and the beers that we're pouring and, and all that kind of good stuff. That's great. And as always, if you guys want to find the podcast or get in contact with myself, just Google Brewery Talks Podcast or look us up at signingsideuptraveling.com. Thank you again, Tucker. This has been great. My pleasure. Yeah, that's all we got. Cheers. All right, cheers. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, give a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcast, and stay tuned for more episodes. Oh, and tell your drinking buddy to listen to the podcast too. Thanks. Cheers.